Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. One could accuse us of running out of ideas. Well, I often do. (laughs) But then something always hits us. Well, in this case, we're going back to the past, re-discussing a topic that was in episode number two. Do you remember what date episode number two was? No clue. May 27, 2016. Oh, my God. How old are we now? Five years and three months. (laughs) Wow. It's a long time ago. Yeah, it was. Not really. But anyway, so what did we talk about? We talked about streaming. The, the title of the episode was To Stream or to Own Music. And we decided that we would look back on this topic to see if we have changed our minds on the streaming versus owning issue. You smile there. I, I wish I could get a screenshot of this in the show notes because you're, you're snickering. Well, the thing is, um, you went back and listened to the podcast, and I did not, which I think is— probably- I listened to the entire episode, so you don't have to. Right. And well, I think it's probably good that one of us didn't because I'd kind of like to be surprised by what I, uh, I think. My guess is that at the time, we probably thought that streaming was going to be a thing, but we'd still— what, buy physical media, buy, uh, still be in the market for well, it? Well, let's look at the context. This is about a year after Apple Music started. Mm-hmm. And while I know you were using Pandora a bit before then, I wasn't using any streaming. I would occasionally use Spotify, but I didn't have a subscription. But we both obviously got Apple Music subscriptions because we need to for the work we do. And for both of us, it was sort of discovering how streaming can work. And sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. And that was five years ago at the beginning. And there were a lot of things going on. They, they, the algorithm wasn't really optimized, but also it didn't know enough about what we listened to. And I think that's something that's changed, as we've mentioned in some recent episodes, that you can put on an Apple Music radio station now and hear music you like because you've been listening to it for five years and it knows what you like, even if you're not only listening to Apple Music. I hope that's true, um, because what I uh, what I think is interesting is on on the three devices that I have Apple Music on, each one has a different musical personality. <laughs> For instance, I don't get the same sort of stuff all the time. It seems like it draws from three different lists. It depends on what I'm listening to. If I, if I'm listening to stuff on the phone, then that's the music that I get on the phone. If I'm listening to it on one of the machines on the desk. That's the sort of music I get. There's rarely, I mean, there is some crossover, but generally speaking, it seems to be that it's, it's, it's device specific. That's interesting. Now, I haven't noticed that. I either listen on my iMac or my iPhone or my iPad. I'll stream to some speaker in some room of the house using whichever device I have handy. And I've never really noticed that there would be a difference from one device to another, but that would make sense. You'd be listening to different music at home than in the car, for example. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons I've noticed is because uh, it's just my ear picks up on the playlist. You know, like as a radio station programmer, it's like, well, what's the next song? You know, so I'm con- I'm, I'm very aware of of what what's going on there. But I, I think that does make sense. It, it, it isn't kind of interesting. So back in the day, you were 
listening to Pandora fairly often. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, you were doing some voice work for them too, right? Yeah, I even did some uh, commercial work for them, yeah. But they're owned by, who owns them now, Sirius or somebody? They got bought out by Sirius XM in 2019. We mentioned back in 2016 how it's only available, I believe, US, Canada, Mexico. And it's still not available in the UK. I went to the website this morning to see what their offer was, and I'm surprised they didn't go international. Now, Sirius XM is only available in North America, too, as far as I know, which could be just because that's where they've got satellites pointing. So I wonder if Pandora is essentially going to fade away, because it was pretty big for a while, wasn't it? People were talking about how good it was for, you know, matching songs. I remember that it was ubiquitous on a lot of things, and it was easy to listen to. And it was fun to sort of program it yourself. It was one of the first things where you could say, I I like this kind of music. And then the genome would spit back stuff that... The genome, right. the music genome project. It would spit back stuff that it also thought you would like. And it, oh yeah, it's all coming back to me now. The genome project assigned certain properties to every song (laughs) ever recorded. And so... If you liked guitar-based vocal music, then you'd hear the Beach Boys and you'd hear the Beatles. And if you liked psychedelic uh, rhythms with uh, bongos and, you know, they would they would really specify. They could really get into Mm -hmm. the the deep sort of detail about the kind of music you liked. And then they would just play more of it. So that was uh, that was an interesting way of going about it. Um, But like I said, I think I think that's what I found interesting about it is that I could. Uh, you know, sculpt it myself. Whereas Apple Music kind of takes that away and takes care of it itself. But the difference is on Pandora, you couldn't choose what you're listening to, right? I think you could skip songs. I think you'd say, and you could also say, don't play this anymore, but... Right, but you couldn't say, I want to play this album. Oh, no, you couldn't. No, there was no demand. Right. There's no on-demand stuff. Right, so that's the difference. And so I I made some notes about the episode. We were were both streaming noobs back in 2016 um, because we both were very reluctant to enter the streaming idea, and we wanted to own our music. And, you know, it it was almost a political thing back there. And I don't know about you, but actually I do know about you, but I've changed that I'm using streaming an awful lot more. I'm not buying much music anymore at all. And five years ago, I wouldn't have expected this change to have occurred so quickly because it started a few years ago. I'd say the past two years is when I kind of gave up buying music for the most part. I forgot where, it must have been during one of our episodes where I kind of tend to think of the file era as like just a stepping stone between Getting physical media into the air and and giving you better control over it so that you don't need to buy files anymore. You know, there's no reason for it. You can I buy physical media when I in fact, I have a thing where if an, I think an album is CD worthy, I will buy the CD. But, you know, the criteria is it has to I'd want to listen to the whole album. Um, but that's only in the past year or so since you bought a CD right. drive. That's right. I've also well, been a CD con- player. It's a hi-fi CD player. You're right. not even running this through a computer. Right. I have an NAD compact disc player. Now, the other thing is, is I think what's happened is I have now see streaming as I used to see radio, where uh, it's, it's, I'm not completely in control of the music, but I have a pretty good idea of what's coming, and that keeps me happy, like my favorite radio station, except it's, there's not a single stream that's being broadcast, it's, you know, whatever kind of stream I I want, whatever flavor I want. Um, But I think at the time, five years ago, I didn't quite grasp that. And one of the great things about 
the idea of streaming being radio is it that's how I we grew up listening to music. We had a radio, we had something to play physical media, and we also had something to record. And we have all those things now. But it took a little while to to go from physical into digital. Um, and we had, like I said, we had this stepping stone of where we had to own files and play them on devices. Now we don't have to own the files. The files come to us on our devices. I think one of the big changes is bandwidth. Yeah. Now... In 2016, I was just that was just before I moved to the house where I am now. At the time, I had gotten six months before like 78 megabit DSL because I was 100 meters from the the cabinet. But I moved here and I had like 15 megabits down. Now I've got a gigabit fiber that's changed. But in the early days of streaming, especially if you were on mobile, I'm trying to think: Did I have like 256? megabytes per month on my mobile contract in streaming data. Now, I work from home, so that's not a big issue. But back then, people had less data on their phone contracts. It's obvious. Uh, minimum you get now with a phone contract is probably a few gigabytes a month. Well, it's funny you should say that because I never experienced that back then. But I have a so-called unlimited uh, uh, bandwidth deal on my phone. And since... Apple started streaming lossless. I've been going over um, the unlimited, which they charge me another ten dollars for a couple of gigs or something, whatever it is. Wow. It's, it's whatever it is. It's fine. I don't mind. But it's really interesting that um, that, that the lossless files that come down now are so much larger and consume so much bandwidth. So I have a pretty good idea of how things must have been for some people. Uh, five, six, ten years ago with streaming. Are you streaming on cellular when you're home, or is this just when oh, you're no, at home? When I'm on the road. When I'm on the road. Okay. And I stream constantly in the car. Yeah. I, well, I, you I know, there's like a, a setting to change that to not yes, get lossless. I, right. Well, I don't want to not have lossless. Okay, but it's true. So, but back in the day, and we were even talking about how some carriers were offering free data if you were using a certain streaming service. That's right. Uh, here in the UK, EE, which is my phone carrier, they were offering free data if you use Deezer. I don't even know if Deezer is still around. I don't know either, um, but I do remember that deal. I think you said in the in the podcast that T-Mobile had a similar thing yeah, in the US. Yeah, there was something similar going on. Like and, and, that, and that was a sort of a perk for a mobile deal to say, you can listen to all the music you want and that won't count against your data. And so two things have happened. One is people have more data in their contracts, but two, with lossless now, that's changing the whole equation. And some people will be like you going over their unlimited yeah. plans. I don't know what to do about yeah. it. Smash my phone, I suppose. Well, well there's a <laughs> setting know, for that. I'll do, I'll do, I know. I'm so we talked about availability because it's not every record ever recorded that's available for streaming. In fact, we were just talking before the show Chicago is releasing a new version of their Live at Carnegie Hall with all of the eight concerts they played in 1971. My guess is there will be a four-CD version on the streaming services, but you won't get the big version. Dylan has one of his new bootleg series things coming out. There's going to be a two-CD version on the streaming services, and there's like an eight- or 12-CD version that you can buy on disc. So we're never going to see those kinds of things. I have here one of the few records that I buy regularly, Grateful Dead Dave's Picks. This is number 39. None of these are going to be on the streaming services. Now, the Dick's Picks are, they're going back 39, that's, we're up to 10 years of Dave's Picks, and the Dick's Picks have been on for a few years, but it'll be years before Dave's Picks hits the streaming services. 
I think what you're saying, though, is that um, there's still value in 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 some physical media. There's and there isn't value on a streaming service. They're not getting their value. The record labels aren't getting value from the streaming services. Yeah. And I, th I think that makes sense, because, again, if you think about a streaming service as radio, it's the music is here and then it's gone. You know, it's just one song after another. Um, it's not the sort of thing that uh, you can sit down with. I think the, the labels understand that, you know, there's a physical media thing that people still uh, who are diehard fans still want media. Streaming services are not your primary. If you're a music fan, I don't think streaming services are, the, are your primary medium. So we were discussing some bands and labels that weren't available on the streaming services. ECM, for example, they only started streaming a couple years ago. I didn't mention it in that episode, but a couple times I'd said I'd pay five bucks a month just for ECM, and now I don't have to because they're all available. King Crimson finally gave in about two years ago, but Hyperion Records, the independent classical label here in the UK, still does not stream. And I've heard from them that they just can't afford it. If they start streaming, people won't buy records. They can't afford to record orchestras. It's that simple. It's a, that's the strangest and saddest thing about modern recording and modern music is that we are losing, we're losing classical music, you know, yeah. drip by drip. It's sad. Well, the only, way, the only way we can keep it is when someone funds a recording, like a foundation or some rich person, right? And, and this is more common than you think. You, you don't always see this on the records in the credits, but it's more and more common. And actually some classical record labels, the smaller ones, you have to pay them to get a record if you're a performer. It's like these academic journals, you know, it's turned into that. Or at best, you don't get anything and the, the label does the recording. You provide the music, they release the recording. You don't get any royalties, but you have a record to put in your CV. You have a record to maybe sell at concerts. You have a record that's in stores, a physical unit that shows that you're an actual performer that who is good enough to have a record, that sort of thing. You know what that, but that's at the level of local band plays nightclub and sells cassettes at their shows. I mean, that's what that seems like to me. But for B-list and C-list classical performers, that's what they need. Yeah. Because yeah, the, I suppose so. the, the competition in classical music, I mean, when there's a thousand people who can play Beethoven, right? How do you pick, you know, you've got the, the, the dozen or so pianists who can play the Beethoven piano sonatas really well at the top, right? The top of the pyramid. At the next level, you've got hundreds who can play them good enough to do smaller shows and smaller venues. So I wonder if that, I wonder if, if, if that same theory works with pop music as well. I mean, you can't have. Thousands and thousands of you can't have thousands and thousands of recording sessions going on like in the 70s and 80s, as I said, millions of times did record anybody. But nowadays you can't just record anybody. You have to if you're going to invest the time and the money, it's got to make money back. And I, I, it just streaming doesn't help that. It only helps the, the big superstars. It doesn't help smaller people who have to go elsewhere and you've got to go looking for them. Well, let's talk about Chicago again. So formed in 1967, four of the seven members are still in the band. One of them just stopped performing because he has Alzheimer's. But still, that many members from 67 still in the band is really impressive. And they have been performing regularly since then. Now, if I look at their upcoming tour dates, they're playing at the Western Idaho Fair, free with admission, the Oregon State Fair, the Mountain Winery, 
the Gao Center for the Arts, Pechanga Resort and Casino, the Bloomsburg Fair. Uh, they do have a symphony hall in Springfield, Missouri, but most of these are small, small venues. They're, they're not in Carnegie Hall. They're not in Madison Square Garden anymore. They're, they're on the road, looks like three or four shows a week. But these are a little Durham Performing Arts Center. This doesn't sound like A-list performance spaces. No, <laughs> they're, not. they're not. I mean, county fairs, right? That's well. I, considering we're in the age of COVID, I mean, being outside, I guess, is I guess some outdoor venues is probably safer. But even so, it's good that they're still able to tour. I kind of wonder if they really need the money. They've sold, you know, hundreds of millions of records over the years. But who knows? Gambling, who knows? women, debt. It's. You know, yeah, I guess even even in your seventies, you want yeah, the sex and drugs and rock and roll, and a, a good night's sleep probably. So, what what's your music reflex now? For me, I find that if I'm doing, let's say I'm I'm in the kitchen, I'm cooking, and I'm going to be spending an hour in the kitchen preparing food. I want music. I don't th often think I want to listen to this. I'll often go to Apple Music and listen now, and it'll show what I've been listening to recently. That's more often what I look at, but. Eh, maybe something else. Maybe this would be the right kind of music for cooking. And more and more, I'm defaulting to that. Even for music that I own, I'm defaulting. And, and I will stress my library is not is still not mixed in with my Apple Music library, right? So my library of ripped physical media is separate. But I'm kind of defaulting to the easy way to find stuff. I suppose I'm doing the exact same thing. I don't... You seem disappointed <laughs> that you're you're doing it that way but i think it's the shortest point between a and b you want to hear some good music you don't want to have to pick it out yourself because it's you know i i you know i occasionally will do that and pull out a cd and listen to it but for the most part i got to get some work done i want to put some music on that i like apple music or any streaming i mean if i was into spotify i'm sure it's the same thing it's easier for me to listen to that and be assured that I'm going to hear some stuff that I enjoy, more so than tuning into any radio station that's trying to appeal to me, and, and more so than I would get um, spinning my own music, I think. But see, you're doing the radio station playlist thing. I'm not. I'm playing yeah. albums. So I'm still choosing an album. And, and the other night I sat down, I was reading. I said, I want to listen to Schubert's Piano Trios. So I looked in my library for Schubert's Piano Trios. Another time, some Beethoven string quartets, right? And so I'll look for those things. I have special lighting in here that I put on when I, I mean, it's the whole <laughs> tea ceremony. And I'll, you know, lower the lights and actually listen to some music. So, yeah, I do that occasionally. Not as much as I used to and not as frequently as like, what, maybe three, four times a week? Probably not. Maybe yeah. once or for, twice for a me, week. For me, it's accompanying. So if I'm at work at my desk, I will go to my iTunes library. I won't stream usually. Because it's there, it's on my iMac. But if I'm cooking, that's the kind of thing. Or if I'm, I want to go take a walk outside, then I'm looking for something to accompany me that is not necessarily a musical choice in the same way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I still think that you have a recreational listening mode and, then, and you also have a, uh, a critical listening mode. And that's pretty much the way I approach it. You know, it's... Yeah. But uh, my wife, for example... Any room she walks into has to have music on. It doesn't make any difference what it is. It's like it's almost like she can't bear the silence, mm. which maybe maybe that's true. I don't know. I've never I asked. I, 
I don't know. Wouldn't hurt to ask before, kind of you know. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it's a matter of having the wallpaper or, you know, how much distraction do you want from the wallpaper? And, or is it not wallpaper? It's Well, often when I'm cooking, it's more... I, I actually need the rhythm of music when I'm cooking, when I'm preparing food. It, it, there's there's a lot of physical activity. I can close my rings on my Apple Watch, spending an hour, you know, going to the sink to wash vegetables, coming back to the, the, the workspace to cut them up, going back to the stove, back and forth. You know, that's a lot of activity. I suppose, yeah. And, and I kind of like that rhythm. I more often than not want something that's rhythmic than something that's, you know, mellow ambient. Whereas in the evening, if we're up in the bedroom reading, I'll put on like a Harold Budd or a Brian Eno or something, you know, something laid back. And do you do you listen to music in the bedroom? Do you listen at night? Do you listen like sometimes like that? Yeah, not yeah. not all the time, not regularly, but sometimes. And it's it's always music that you choose. You're 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 more apt to choose what you want to listen yeah. to rather than the arbitrary Apple Music spot. Yeah, in in that context, I don't look for something that Apple Music recommends. I mean. That there's there's a type of music I want to listen to when I'm reading without vocals because I find that disturbing, you know, the words um, get in the way. So jazz or ambient music or classical, you know, not orchestras, you know, piano, string quartet, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's interesting. There are different contexts where we listen, where we want different types of music. The other day I was sitting outside reading. I've got my AirPods Max. Someone was mowing the lawn. Thank God for AirPods Max when someone's mowing the lawn, right? Noise canceling. And I just, okay, what am I going to listen to? Flip through, found something, which I'll actually mention is my next track pick. And that was like, it was one of the things that was recommended of the hundred or so that you can see on Listen Now if you scroll through them all. And it was an album that I'm very familiar with. And it was like, okay, why not? See, that's what I was going to get at next is how do you find things you haven't heard before? And one of the great things I've found about Apple Music is that it does recommend things that you that are not in your library that sound like they should be. <laughs> and um, I've discovered a lot of music that way, especially since I've been hanging out in the 70s for so long, trying to find music that I hadn't heard before. I really get recommended a lot of that 70s rock. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, a lot of it is garbage, but a, a lot of it isn't. Well, see, now that's the problem. I don't find the discovery to be very good. A lot of the things that are recommended, as you say, are not necessarily garbage, but they're just not what I want. And I'm almost hesitant to start playing an album on Apple Music that's been recommended because even if I don't like it, they're going to record that I listen to some of it, and that's going to prime the algorithm to recommend more like that's it. That's a good point. And I, and I find that a little bit disturbing. And I don't want to have to go back each time and say, well, you know, don't recommend anything like this. Yeah, I don't like um, having to say I don't like it. I just, it feels funny to say I don't like it. It's not, yeah. it's not right that I don't like it. It's not that I don't like it. It's just that I don't, I don't want to hear it again. But it's not because I don't like it. It's like I don't, pref it's just I don't like like and love for music. That's, that's kind yeah, of bothers yeah, me. Yeah. And one thing that I'm seeing in new releases is I used to get new releases on Apple Music, which were things I would be familiar with, artists or composers, et cetera. And I'm starting to get more and more tangential stuff. And I don't know why. And, and it's kind of weird because right now I'm looking at the, the For You and new releases. And I see a bunch of things in the new releases column, right, the carousel. And then when I click and see all, they're not all there. In fact, it's actually the ones that, I wonder why they're there that aren't showing up there, which is a little bit weird. 
Do you remember when we had Jim Dalrymple on an early episode and his his uh, problem with Apple Music was Apple had told us that they were going to show us the music that we would like. And whenever he went to Apple Music, he saw a bunch of music that he didn't like. And yep. he thought that Apple was going to say, no, you, you'll probably like this better. And I think early on they were better. They were even better at that um, than they are now. Now they're not like that at all. I see so much stuff that I, I, I don't think I want to listen to that. I wonder if it's because there's so much more. If I remember correctly, they launched with 30 million tracks and they're now about 70. And a lot of that is filling in back catalog, but also adding smaller record labels that weren't streaming originally. And I wonder if there's just more dreck out there. I mean, 70 million tracks? Think about it. There, There is a lot of dreck. There's a lot of... Uh... I don't know. I guess in the old days we might have called them bootlegs. But for instance, um, well, not even that. Uh, I'm just I, thinking self-produced, you know, track. Yeah. Well, uh, this a lot of stuff I see is like a lot of live concerts that are repackaged as some kind of album, um, and the original artist probably has nothing to do with them. Uh, they were just old radio broadcasts or something. I see a lot of those and. Uh, it fills out the back catalog to some degree, but a yeah. lot of it is just not worth listening to. Well, on the one hand, what I do find interesting is that there are certain artists and certain bands where I've always thought, wow, I'd really like to listen to, you know, all these records, right? And I get that opportunity to do it once without having to buy them, without having to find alternative ways of listening to them, which could include, you know, pirated albums on YouTube or anything because there's all sorts of options. On the other hand, I, I wish there was some, I wish there were little checkboxes next to each album to, you know, to rate them, to say, I really don't like this very much, right? And to, I wish the algorithm was more, I don't know. I mean, we've discussed in the past, my musical tastes are so broad that it's kind of hard to nail it down. But but then what happens is one day I was checking out some sound effects records, looking for some sound effects for something. And then for a week, I was seeing these sound effects records recommended to me. It's like, that just doesn't make sense. So you play one album and all of a sudden you get all this stuff recommended to you. And that's, again, why I hesitate sometimes about playing some of the recommendations. Yeah. I suppose that uh, for regular folks, uh, that works out okay. Or or not. I don't know. Why would, why would people want to hear a lot of new, unfamiliar music? Is that... I mean, I just can't imagine being a young person wanting to be inundated with it. Um, I would go looking for it myself, I think, as a young person, but I don't think I'd want to have it, you'd like this, you'd like this, you'd like this. I don't know. Maybe not. Well, so here's a, a you know, if you like, they have, so here's if you like Robert Fripp. So here's a Harmonia Eno 76. Here's a Eraldo Bernocchi, Harold Budd, and Robin Guthrie. Here's a John Hassel playlist, a Harold Budd album. King Crimson Essentials. So these are things that all fit together. And they can do that, like, one degree of separation fairly well, but it's the three degrees of separation that they can't do. That's it. That's right. It's the, it's the if I like Robert Fripp, maybe I'll like Terry Riley, right? They can't make the link between the two yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. What you, I, I think that's where you have to depend on other media and your buddies and, you know, television. And but even it's it's just not easy. No, it's not. There's just too yeah. much. And, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times that my son turns me on to music and, and he doesn't bother to recommend things that he thinks I won't like because, you know, there's not a big overlap in our musical taste. Well, you can adjust his algorithm yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't know enough people into the kind of music I like to get recommendations. And that's another problem. <laughs> 
Yeah. So anyway, I got a next track pick. And this was inspired by that day when I was sitting outside with the AirPods Max and I wanted something to listen to. And one of the recommended things, I think because I'd listened to a Harold Budd album recently, was Terry Riley's Shree Camel. Shree Camel, it's S-H-R-I, was a work that was commissioned by a West German radio station from Terry Riley in 1975. And he performed it in 76. And then he made a different version of the piece, separated into four tracks, recorded it with CBS, and it wasn't released until 1978, 1980. Not entirely sure about this. He performed on a Yamaha YC45D combo organ tuned in just intonation and augmented with studio digital delay. Now, it's not the album that I'm going to recommend, but it is a video of him performing this work in 1977. We, I showed you a screenshot before the show, and we were trying to figure out what kind of organ it was. And that's what it is. It was Yamaha, whatever. He's got two tape decks on either side, and he's got a couple of electronics boxes up above. There's looping, there's delay, and the just intonation is really interesting. Just intonation is where the amount of the, the frequency difference between one note and the next is exactly the same between every note. And that's not the way we tune keyboards. We tune where some are a little bit flat and some are a little bit sharp. And the just intonation actually sounds a little bit spicy to our modern ears. But just intonation is something that was very common in the Middle Ages because they didn't have, they couldn't tune things as, as precisely as we can now. Anyway, this is a fascinating work. It's improvisations on organ. And yes, it's, on the record, it's something that he scored, but he improvised in performance. So I haven't seen this video yet. I only came across it yesterday, and that will be my next track. What do you got? I have um, Bloodwind Pigs, all said and done. Bloodwind Pig is a band that was put together by Mick Abrams, who was the original guitar player for Jethro Tull. He's a blues guy. And if you know Jethro Tull's first album, This Was, you know that it's much more blues-oriented than anything Jethro Tull did later. The reason is, is because Mick Abrams and Ian Anderson had a little uh, difference of opinion about which direction Jethro Tull should go in, and he left the band. And Jethro Tull went on to do their 17th century agrarian sort of musical thing, and Mick Abrams went on, and he also did a sort of a... You know, I often think that he... He wanted to pretend that the blues was invented in Britain during the 17th century agrarian period that Jethro Tull was supposed to be from. The first two Bloodwind Pig albums are really, really cool bluesy things. But the, this third album called All Said and Done, half of the album is Mick Abrams redoing the songs from This Was. And let me tell you something. If Mick Abrams had stayed in the band and Jethro Tull had gone in a more blues direction, it would have been very interesting. This Bloodwin Pig album where he redoes This Was is just incredible. There's a 10-minute version of Cat Squirrel that just blew me away. He is an incredible blues guitar player. There's hardly a progressive-sounding song on here at all. It's very blues-based, yet it's still has some of this progressive sound. He has a flute player. He has a, a, a flute vocalist, sax player. Uh, they, of course, have harmonica, but they just do it in a different way than Jethro Tull did it. Really fascinating stuff. Mick Abrams gave up playing. He's still with us. He gave up playing a couple of years ago because he has arthritis in his hands and he can't play guitar anymore. But he continued to tour and play for years and years and years doing 
Jethro Tull stuff and also some of his blues-oriented stuff. But this record is really tremendous. Bloodwind Pig, All Said and Done, is my next track. This was episode number 217 of the next track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.